for Jonas and Christina Davison, who are missionaries of ours that had their child, Ian Jonas Davison. And uh, they were thrilled about it. They were a little bit nervous. I've talked to them quite often, actually, via Zoom. And uh, they were a little nervous. The process in, uh, in Japan is much different, let's just say that, from having a baby in the States. But we have a healthy baby born. Now four kids... Uh, they moved there during COVID in quarantine, and uh, just imagine that, having three kids, I think a 700-square-foot apartment in the middle of Tokyo, trying to learn the language during COVID and then uh, having a pregnancy during that. So we need to pray for our missionaries, especially the Davisons. Let me pray. Father, we are so thankful uh, for the life that you give us and that we would uh, be able to, in this life, even though it's difficult and painful at times, even though childbirth is um, part of the curse and not, not pleasant, we're thankful that we can delight ourselves in you and that you give us the desires of our hearts and that we, all throughout Scripture, as you tell us, we need to fear not because you're with us. Your right hand guides us. You, our shepherd, will oversee us and lead us, even through, as we just sang, even through the deepest valleys. And you defend us with the cross and with your ascended uh, throne. You defend us as one of your own. When our hearts condemn ourselves, when we start to pile on the guilt and the shame, when we think we haven't done enough or been enough or accomplished enough or made enough, In those moments, Father, may we become preachers of the gospel to our own hearts. To remember that for whatever reason, and it's mysterious, you decided to love us. And you secured that love by sending your son to care for and to take care of all of our debts and all of our sin and all of our shame. And by giving us the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of Christ to live within us so that we actually become the temples of the living God here on earth. And your spirit resonates with our spirit. And so we're able to cry even in the dark times, Abba, Father. And so we do that now. Some of us desperately need that. We, we need to take a moment, even though this service has been filled with music and confession and grace, maybe need to take a moment and say, Abba, Father, I need you. I need help. I need comfort. I need security. I need joy. I need peace. I need the delight in you again. It's been way too long since I've remembered what it's like to delight in your grace and to dance before you. Father, we need to remember that uh, with all the temptations in this world, it's better to have a little as righteous than to abound as wicked. And that the daily life that you give us to live is one worth living, and we want to do it for your glory. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. How do you know uh, who a person is? That's a question. That you, you don't know you do this, but you do this automatically. Everybody in this room does this automatically. How do you figure out who a person actually is? You do four things. The first thing is this. You listen to their claims about who they say they are. 
I'm an introvert, I'm an extrovert, I'm a kind person. I'm, whatever they claim about themselves, you take that information, you take that observation, and you start to form an opinion about who they are. The second thing you do, without knowing it, is you listen to what their friends say about them. So somebody might say, you need to go on a date with this person. I know it's a blind date, but they're so funny, they're so kind, you'll love them. And so you start to form an opinion about what their friends say about them. The third thing you do to figure out who a person is, is you watch their interactions with other people. I've said to my daughters since they were very little, if you're on a date with a guy and he's rude to the waiter, just go ahead and run. And I stole that from uh, Dave Wilcox, because one day he's going to think you're the waiter and he's going to be rude to you. But when you watch somebody's interactions with other people, that's when you start to form an opinion about who that person is. That's the third thing you do. Without even knowing it, you do those things automatically to try to figure out who an individual is. The fourth thing you do is this. What's their role that they're fulfilling? Are they a dad? Are they a mom? Uh, uh, Are they a NASA astronaut? Somebody says to you, I'm, I'm an astronaut for NASA. You immediately think, well, you've got to be bright. You've got to be meticulous. Uh, you've got to be very scientific oriented. If somebody says, I'm a Navy SEAL, you immediately think, you're probably pretty courageous. You're probably aggressive. You're probably uh, courageous. If somebody says, I'm a data analyst, you never think, that guy's going to be the life of the party. You never think that. <laughs> You can kind of form like an opinion based on the role that they're fulfilling. Now, if you're not a believer, uh, the issue that comes to us every Sunday is this, who is Christ? And we use those same four things to figure out who Christ is. First of all, who does he say that he is? He says, I'm the son of God. I'm the light of the world. I'm the Messiah who is to come. So we take those claims And you have to figure out those claims, what you think about them. Then the second thing you do is this, and this is where it gets tricky for non-Christians. You listen to what other people say about them, either the disciples or the people that know him in this world. And that's where it gets tricky because not all Christians represent Christ well. The third thing that you do is you watch his interactions with people. And so you read the New Testament and you see, oh, this is the king of the kings. This is the king of the world. And he loves the poor. And he's taking care of the women who were thrown out of society. And he cares for those that nobody else is caring for. And he pays attention to Zacchaeus up in the tree. And it's the interaction of the woman at the well who eventually runs back into town. And remember what she says? This is the man who told me everything that I ever did. And the whole town followed him. And then the fourth thing is still true for Christ. What role does he play? And when Christ comes, he plays the role of prophet, priest, and king. That's the confession. That's why we had that in the liturgy, liturgy this morning. That's how we start to understand those four things, and especially his role. That's how we start to understand who Christ is. First of all, he's a priest. Uh, we see he's a better priest than the priests chronologically that we see biblically. Uh, the priest, priest would be Samuel and Eli. Moses was a priest figure. Most people would argue that Adam was a priestly figure. And then the Bible transitions to the period of kings, and you get the kings like David and Solomon and Asa and Hezekiah and all of those kings, and Christ is a better king. 
And now we're at the place in scripture reading, if you're just joining us, we're reading through the scripture all year long, where we have transitioned from the priests to the kings and now to the prophets. And he's a better prophet. And here we see Elijah, who's maybe the best prophet. Uh, He'd be right up there if you were voting. He'd be right up there with like Isaiah, right up there with uh, so many of the other, Hosea, Jeremiah. He'd be right there. And when we see Christ in the New Testament, do you remember what he says in Matthew chapter 16? He says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? Like I need to know of those four ways that you kind of feared this, who do people say that I am? And remember how people responded? Some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're Jeremiah. Some say that you're one of the other prophets. In other words, everybody kind of agrees that you're some kind of prophetic figure who, as we said in our liturgy, is going to teach us the will of God and what we need to do. And we see Elijah, and I think as I've had conversations with so many of you, uh, when we've been reading through the Bible, so many people have said to me, Andy, I, I'm just kind of taken back with how, how much of a mess all these people are. You know, they're, they're like, they're just not the people, the heroes that we thought. And yes, that's true. Christianity is not about creating a hero culture. It's not about, I don't want to get too philosophical here, but a hero culture, think of uh, Wagner or Nietzsche that promoted uh, Ubermensch, a Superman kind of model, and everybody had to fit into that. That's incredibly dangerous. God is always going to be for his own glory, even working through the depravity of men and women. And so when we see Elijah, we see that as well. If you Google this afternoon, and I think you could do this and nothing bad's going to come up, but if you Google this afternoon, celebrities are just like us, what will you see? You'll see Nicole Kidman filling up her gas tank. Now, her car is going to be nicer than yours. Uh, you know, he'll be in like a Defender 90 or something like that, but she'll be filling up her gas tank. And you'll see Chris Pine uh, buying a burger. And you'll see Denzel Washington getting his hair cut. And you'll see, and that's kind of a whole like niche genre. Celebrities are just like us. We want to know that they're normal, that they do the same things. And when you look at the Old Testament, sometimes you have to think, these people are just like us. Hosea was frustrated, David was angry. Solomon was lustful, and Elijah was depressed and struggled to believe that God was still working and was still active. So let's read the text before us, 1 Kings chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he rose, and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, 
Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and he ate and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said to God, and, and he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and a strong wind tore the mountains and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous of the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, and you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed them. This is the word of the Lord. There are uh, three questions that I simply want to ask about this text. What do you need to know? What do you need to do? And what do you need to remember? Especially in regards to those times that you're feeling all alone. Those times that you're feeling depressed. First, what do you need to know? You need to know that depression comes as a natural outworking of spiritual warfare. If you know the background of the text, and I think most of you do, he had just had this huge victory over Baal. He should be on cloud nine. He should be celebrating. He should have said, God, you have shown up. You're real. You're doing all these things. But depression or being morose or being under the weather emotionally can sometimes come just because of spiritual warfare, just because we live in a world where there is evil that exists and we constantly have it before our eyes. Depression can occur when everything goes well. Number two, depression is actually a part of the normal Christian life. Charles Spurgeon, Isaac Watts, John Newton, Margaret Clarkson, Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, Ignatius of Loyola, Augustine, I mean, pick your saint. Almost every one of them, to some degree, has dealt with some type of depression, feeling all alone. Now, I grew up in the generation, 
I think the 40s are really interesting right now because there's a major like generational divide happening. And just because of how it works out, I'm kind of in the middle of that. And I grew up in that generation where some of the generation older than me would say, you can't go to a counselor, you can't have a therapist, you can't take medicine for all of these things, you just need to get over it. Matter of fact, one time I confessed, this was years ago, I said, I have a counselor, I go to counseling, and I had several people come up to me of an older generation that said, if my pastor ever said that in the church I grew up, they would immediately fire him. But then the generation below me is all about the therapy, <laughs> and they're all about the counseling. You know, it almost swings almost a little bit, and everybody's suppressed, and everybody should be on something. I've noticed this, and I don't want to get off the track of this because it deserves more time or attention, but I've noticed this with the Dobbs decision. The way the generational divide is talking about this is incredibly different, and I say that for encouragement for Mitchell Road, because one of the things I love about Mitchell Road the best is this. We're an intergenerational church. It's not just 30s. It's not just 80s. It's not just 20s. It's everybody. In this church, we have the opportunity to be a microcosm of conversation that would help us figure out what's happening in the larger society. And so that needs to happen. Six-year-olds, you need to find 20-year-olds and then listen to them and hear their experiences. At 30-year-olds, you need to find 70-year-olds and listen to them and learn about their experiences. And we have the opportunity to do that. But we're at that generational divide. And I want to say this. Uh, There are a lot of different types. When we say depression, there's a lot of different types. There's clinical depression. That's one thing. There's spiritual depression, part of spiritual warfare, or your guilt or your shame over sin. There's emotional depression. You just have a bad day. Something hasn't gone wrong. You've had a bad month. There's physical depression. You've been in the ICU for a month, and you are just depressed because you're not yourself. Uh, There's all these different types of depression. It's not just one type of depression. There's situational depression. You experience the loss of a loved one or a business, and that could send you into depression. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the great doctor, he was a doctor for the queen before he became a pastor, and I love this quote. He says, would you like to be rid of this spiritual depression, which is what most of us will face? Not everybody, but most of us will face a spiritual depression. The first thing you have to do is to say farewell now, once, and forever to your past. Realize that it's been covered and blotted out in Christ. Never look back at your sins again and say, but say, it is finished. It is covered by the blood of Christ. That is your first step. Take that and finish with yourself and all this talk about goodness and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only then that true happiness and joy are possible for you. What you need is not to make resolutions to live a better life, to start fasting and sweating and praying. No, you just begin to say, I rest my faith on him alone who died for my transgressions to atone. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And if you wanted a book to read on this issue, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures is the best that's ever been written. But what Lloyd-Jones says, what the good doctor is, what they call them, what the good doctor says is this. We probably underestimate what Christ has done 
on the cross for us. We probably forget to revel in the fact that you don't have to go back and keep beating yourself up for those same decisions or those same sins or those same problems. You actually are free from that. Not just eternally, but now you don't have to live in the past and keep reliving the past in the way that brings you down. Look again to the cross. Look again to Christ. Remind yourself that your faith is resting upon him and him alone, and he's atoned for all of it. And pick yourselves up and go about your day. Which, which leads to the second question, which is this. What do you need to do? Now, we see a very great pattern of a daily rhythm here. If you look in the text, you see in verse 5, I lay down under a broom tree. Just, you know, Elijah couldn't get out of bed. Laid down under this broom tree, and the angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. I would, I'd love to write the biography um, of Elijah. And if I ever wrote a biography about Elijah, I think I would entitle it, When Angels Put Me to Bed. Just seems like a great title. Literally, like these ministering angels who, who came to him and said, Here, okay, we've got to establish, first of all, a daily l- rhythm. Get up, here's a scone, here's a muffin, take some water, go back to bed. And then a few hours later, get up, here's another scone, here's another muffin, get some water, go back to bed. It's really just establishing the daily rhythms of life. And Part of getting out of any kind of depressive state is realizing God gives us daily rhythms which can be incredibly helpful for our spirituality. Uh, Years ago, this is probably 10 years ago, uh, a gentleman called me. He was in his 70s, and he said, Andy, I want to come in and talk to you. I said, great. And uh, he was depressed and anxious. He was a member of this church. He's now deceased. I did this funeral. I love the man. And uh, so we started to talk through his life. Why are you depressed? Why are you so anxious? And as we talked through his daily rhythms, he got up at 4 or 5 in the morning and uh, would have breakfast, and then at 6 he'd turn on the news. And he would watch the news until about 11. And then he'd go have lunch, and he'd try to do like a workout in the afternoon, maybe run some errands, and then he'd get back to the house around 6. He was uh, a widow at the time, and he'd turn on the news. And he'd watch the news till like 11 and then go to bed. And I said, well, let's start by turning off the news. <laughs> and two weeks later, he called me and he said, I'm a changed man. I'm a completely changed man. I, he couldn't imbibe, you know, 10 hours of the world falling apart that the news is telling. He had to change his daily rhythm. And for some of it, it really is as simple as turn off your cell phone and go for a walk. Call your friend. Eat less. Drink some water. Establish some kind of rhythm. Now, just so you don't think I'm like a psychological uh, kluke right now, look at this quote. When you feel depressed, it helps to actively change your environment. Go and do something different. Martin Luther conquered his depression by going outside to work in his garden. That's not Oprah. That's R.C. Sproul. I found that quote, I said, I have to use this because at this point, you're going to think, well, Andy, you're just doing pop psychology. No, God has made us as these kind of beings. And as Luther found out, sometimes just going for a run or going outside and working in your garden or making a meal and taking it to a friend can make all the world of difference. And so that's what the 
angel did with Elijah. He established a daily rhythm. Here's the second thing. He started talking to God. Look at verse 10. I love verse 10. What are you doing here, Elijah? I've been very jealous for you. And he goes on to say all of the righteous things I've done. But I, I alone am the only one left. That's depression starts to form when you feel like you are the only one. All of, the, all of us in this room have probably been on family vacation and everybody's out at the beach and you're the last one in the kitchen doing the dishes. And what do you think at that moment? I, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that cares about this family. I'm the only one that's here doing these righteous things. Now you just extrapolate that out. You're the last one at the office. Everybody else has shut it in for the night. You're still there trying to work on that contract. I, I'm the only one left. Uh, you're the only one that does the laundry. You're the only one that cares about the loss. You're the only one who's given money to missions. You're the only one that whatever. Everybody in this room will get to that point where you start to feel all alone. Nobody else knows the trouble I've seen. And when that happens, you know what you have to do? Here's the third thing. You talk to God to figure out where you are emotionally. Prayer, we're going to talk about prayer all next year. But part of prayer for me is not asking God for stuff. Part of prayer for me is just figuring out where I am, just orienting myself. And once I start talking like Elijah did, he started to figure out, okay, this is the problem. I feel like I'm the only one left. The solution is to form community. So if you look at the end of the text, look at what he says, verse 15. He says, I want you to go anoint this king, and then I want you to go anoint this king, and then I want you, verse 16, to anoint Elisha to be the prophet in your place. I want you to know, Elisha, the solution for you getting out of this cycle of thinking about yourself all the time and your selfishness is to realize you're actually dispensable not saying you're disposable that's a different thing but you're dispensable when i was at general assembly last week two weeks ago i looked around that room and i said to a friend of mine who was standing right beside me another pastor i said in this it's good to know that in this room and i mean this seriously in this room there's a thousand other guys that could take my place and 950 of them would be better at it than i am I might have the upper hand on 50 of those guys. But 950 would probably do a better job. And that's okay. Because God's going to achieve his glory. God is jealous for his glory. And there's a part where we have to realize we are. We are dispensable. But God's church is going to continue on with or without me, with or without you, because God is jealous for his glory. That's why he says at the end, oh, and Elijah, don't forget I've got 7,000 other people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. We're doing just fine. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church of Christ. There's something else we need to realize at this point. We realize, realize in community uh, you're not alone. And, and can I just, I don't, I don't want this to be braggadocious, uh, but I'm really proud of this church and what we're developing and we're getting there because I had a, a person from this congregation uh, in my office a couple weeks ago, and they said, 
Andy, we have this situation in our family. We don't know what to do. Nobody else has had this situation. And I said, I know three other people that have had that situation. If I call them and they're willing to talk with you, would y'all be willing to share information? So I called the other couples, and each couple said, by all means. It would be my honor, it would be my privilege to sit down with that other couple and to share that same story, that you're not all alone. We used to have safe places. We still have them in pockets, but it was a ministry that we couldn't continually sustain. But safe places were uh, these little groupings where if you had a prodigal child, you could come to this group. If you had a child that struggled with same-sex attraction, you could come to this group. And it started because one day, three individuals in my office, one after another after another, three women all came to me and said, I've never said this to anybody, but I had an abortion when I was in college. Another one, I've never told anybody, but I had an abortion three years ago. I've never told my husband. I've never told anybody, but I had an abortion when I was a teenager. And after the third meeting, I said, God must be doing something. And all of them felt completely alone. And so we formed a safe place for people. And we told them, if you just have the courage to walk through that door, everybody behind that door has had the same experience that you have. And they were able to confess and share their stories, and find healing, and find grace, and find peace. Everybody around you in this room is just as broken as you are. I know we're all dressed up this morning, and I know we're all singing pretty, but you look around this room, and the next room after this, and in between, I mean, it's a low Sunday, but uh, 4th of July weekend, but everybody in this church is a community that can help you. You don't have to feel all alone. And can I just go one step further? I know the pain of this, and you probably do too. I mean, I know the pain of uh, holding my son when he was a year and a half, rocking on my uh, kitchen floor with Daniel in my lap, and my wife saying to me, just let me take Daniel, and me saying to her, no way. This is the only person in the world I feel like I don't have to perform for. I feel all alone. I can't let go of him. He's my security blanket because he loves me just for being me. And then I realized pretty much every pastor in the world feels that way. And there's community then. And then there's life again. And that's what happens with this text. He takes Elijah and he says, have a scone, drink a little bit, go ahead and talk it out, go ahead and pray, and then remember, I've got 7,000 others, and, and find your person who's going to take over for you, and we're going to be fine, Elijah. Go about your business, which leads us to the last thing. What do you need to remember? Here's what you need to remember. The gospel gives you a way out. It doesn't always solve it all, but the gospel gives you a way out. Look at what Elise Fitzpatrick says. The depressed don't simply need to feel better. They need a redeemer who says, take heart, my son, my daughter. What you really need has been supplied. Life no longer need to be about your goodness, success, righteousness, or failure. I've given you something infinitely more valuable than good feelings. Your sins are forgiven. And that's a truth that's true regardless of your feelings. So you have to get your theology 
to talk to your emotions, to get your emotions back in line, because we're not always going to feel good. And that's okay. But regardless of how you feel, your sins are forgiven. And then here's what I want you to see and remember, that God knows where you are. Verse 9 and verse 13 of this text, same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Wherever you are right now in life, God already knows it. He knows where you are. So go ahead and talk to him about it. Like literally this afternoon. And maybe you need to vocalize, I feel all alone. I feel scared. I feel afraid. Or I'm super thrilled with where we are right now, Lord. I'm so excited to be a part of your kingdom. But talk it out because God knows where you are. I like what Spurgeon says. He says, I note that some who I greatly love and esteem who are, in my judgment, among the very choices of God's people, nevertheless, travel most of the way to heaven by night. What a great great line that is. Some people are just going to travel most of the way to heaven by night. Because their lives, we've got a friend, Elizabeth, and I have a dear, dear friend, and it's just like no matter what, What she does, nothing seems to go well for her. And it's not her fault. She's doing everything right. But she's just traveling to heaven by night, and that's okay. And here's the last point, and we're going to come right to communion. I want you to realize in this text that God is loud in his love and quiet in his comfort. I love verse 11 where it says, Go out and stand before this mountain, and the earthquake came and the wind broke everything into pieces and the fire was there and it's this loudness of God saying don't forget don't forget how powerful I am sometimes when I come in here I have to look at that cross because I can't look at the choir because sometimes they're actually distracting so I look at the cross and I think about the loudness of God's love displayed on the cross that the cross of Christ displays for everybody in this world to see those people are sinners so much so I had to die for them but this is also how much I love them it's the loudness of God's love and it's also sometimes that quiet whisper when you're in your car or on your bed at night and his spirit Reminds your spirit that you're God's child. That small, quiet whisper of the Holy Spirit that it is well with my soul and it's going to be okay. It's normal to say things in in a a normal tone. I'm going to pick on Kevin Couch just because I saw him here. He's an elder and he's a friend. And it would be very normal for Kevin to say to me, I think it would be normal for Kevin to say to me or for me to say to Kevin at lunch when we're leaving, hey, I love you, man. Love you too. I think that, I think that would be normal. If not, I'll find somebody else to illustrate the point. <laughs> but if we're at Pita House and Kevin stands up and says, hey, hey, everybody, I just want you all to know I love Andy Lewis. That would be awkward. And I would. And then we'd never have lunch again. Or if he gave me a hug after the service and he whispered in my ear, I love you, man. That would be equally awkward. But that's what intimacy is, right? The kiss cam, 
where everybody at game gets to see the display of love, the cross of Christ, which announces to the world, I love my people from Jesus, and also the whisper of intimacy in our ears. That's why it says in Zephaniah, I will rejoice over you with singing, and I will quiet you with my love. Now, friends, as we come to this communion table, let's take hope, as it says in the Proverbs, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And part of depressive states and being down morose spiritually is because you have deferred hope. Don't defer hope. As we come to this communion table, we're gonna watch people walk forward, and uh, I want you to be encouraged that everybody, as we